0: Good afternoon, everybody. Thank, thank you for coming. My name is Dan Eikenson. I am uh, director of the Cato Institute's Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Uh, with me today are my three trade policy colleagues at, at Cato. Normally when we do these Hill events, um, we have maybe a member of Congress to speak with us as well, but since Frank Underwood did not return my call, uh, we decided to populate the place with, with Cato folks. That's a that's a House of Cards reference for those of you not familiar with that show. Um, let me just tell you a little bit about Cato. Uh, for for those who don't know, we're a public policy research organization, nonpartisan. Uh, we uh, espouse uh, views consistent with the ideas of limited government, uh, free markets, individual liberty, and and global peace. Uh, so we are sort of fiscally conservative, uh, socially liberal. Keep the government out of the boardroom and out of the bedroom, kind of kind of approach to, to, to policy issues. On economic issues, we are indeed pro-market, uh, pro-market capitalism. We are not pro-business. Uh, we're not anti-business, but we are pro, pro-market. pro um, The mission of the Trade Center is to educate the public about the benefits of free trade uh, and the costs of protectionism. And we're different from a lot of other organizations that, are, that say they support free trade, uh, because we support free trade over here. Uh, lots of organizations say, "Yeah, I'm for free trade over there. You know, op- open those foreign markets, but let's keep ours closed." Uh, we advocate opening our own markets, regardless of what other what other countries do, because our own trade barriers suffocate us, and they keep competition at bay. Uh, they stymie uh, innovation, uh, consumer choice, and so we're, we're we're strong advocates of unilateral liberalization. Uh, in the United States. The real benefits of trade come on the import side, after all, and if you think about it, when you go to the store, you want to get as much as you can for your money. You want to get as much in exchange, as much value for what you are giving up. Um, Those are the imports. You want to maximize your imports. Um, the, uh, the, The real benefits come on that side. And they're manifest in various ways. I mean, when when consumers have more choices, when U.S. businesses are confronting competition that they didn't have before, uh, they improve. They improve their product offerings. The very best example, in my opinion, is the auto industry. If you look at what the U.S. auto producers were providing to Americans uh, in the 1970s, um, you know, the AMC Pacer and the Gremlin and the Chrysler K car and, you know, beautiful additions like those... um, They they really benefited from Japanese investment and Japanese competition here. And as a result, they raised their game. And if you look at auto prices over the years, there's very uh, little inflation when you adjust. I mean, there's very little price increase when you adjust for inflation and quality improvements. That uh, has a lot to do with uh, open trade and investment. Um, When you hear about trade in, in, in the United States, you often hear it put cast in this sort of us versus them paradigm, uh, Team America versus the foreign team, uh, exports are our points, and imports are the other team's points, the trade account is the scoreboard, uh, we have a, a, a trade deficit, so we must be losing at trade, uh, and, and we're losing, of course, because the other team is cheating. Um, we don't think of trade that way. Um, the, uh, we, we don't necessarily, th- we don't think the trade deficit is a, is a problem, and in fact, you'll you hear a lot about that, particularly when trade agreements are uh, topical. That you know, it's going to add to the trade deficit. It's going to uh, imports are going to exceed exports. Uh, the, the, the fact is, we have grown the economy despite 50 years of trade deficits. Uh, we've added jobs. We're, we've been in a bit of a rut the past few years since the Great Recession. Uh, but there's a very strong positive relationship between the trade deficit and jobs, between the trade deficit uh, and GDP. So, uh, you know, how, how do we create jobs when we're buying more from abroad? Uh, then, then we're selling them. Well, those dollars that we use to buy products abroad come back in the form of investment. Foreign companies setting up shop here, uh, equity investors, uh, people buying US government debt, and that's probably th- the worst way to, to, to channel investment to create jobs and grow the economy, but, but that does happen. So uh, be skeptical when you hear people uh, complaining about the trade deficit. Um, There has been this tension between producers and consumers. Uh, There always is this tension. We have antitrust laws. Um, So why shouldn't we invite competition from foreign producers? Uh, To to think in terms of us versus them, uh, you're expecting uh, uh, Americans to be, the United States to be some monolith with identical interests. But we do have, consumers have different interests than producers. Producers that rely on imports have different uh, interests than import competing producers. You look at our imports, about 70% of the value of US imports uh, are um, raw materials, intermediate goods, and capital equipment, the purchases of US companies. So uh, we we really need to remain engaged. I uh, just want to give you a little bit of an overview. The topic today, of course, is TPA, a lot of acronyms. Um, I hope you're all familiar with Trade Promotion Authority, Trans-Pacific Partnership, the uh, uh, Transatlantic Trade and Investment uh, Partnership, and you. Um, when, we, when will we enjoy the fruits of the U.S. trade agenda? I just want to bring us up up to speed. Where, you know, where, sort of where we are. Um, we uh, we've had me- the uh, we've had U.S. trade policy has liberalized since the Second World War, primarily through these multilateral arrangements, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade after the Second World War. Uh, The number of countries involved in that process has increased. The the number of trade barriers reduced has increased. Uh, And there were eight successful rounds through the the last successful round, which was the Uruguay round, which was completed in 1994. And that round created the World Trade Organization. Since then, multilateral liberalization has somewhat stalled. Uh, The the first few years of the WTO, there were efforts to launch a new round. you might be familiar with the battle in Seattle in, in 1999, sort of the birth of the anti-globalization movement. Um, there wasn't a lot of interest among members uh, and among constituencies within countries to move forward with a new round. In 2001, likely attributable to reactions to 9-11, uh, the world decided to launch the Doha round in November of 2001. Well, that went on for a number of years. We haven't; it hasn't really borne fruit. Maybe a small little marisiano cherry uh, recently, but um, after two years, the, the talks had broke down at the ministerial in Cancun, and it was pretty evident to me at the time that things weren't going to progress uh, in, in, through th- through that channel. Um, so, Robert Zellick, the USTR at the time, sort of announced this policy of competitive liberalization instead of just pursuing this multilateral track. Let's, let's pursue trade liberalization with more easy partners, countries that really want to move forward. And uh, a series of tra- bilateral agreements were negotiated and concluded. At that time, we'd only had free trade agreements with four countries, with Israel, Jordan, Canada, and Mexico. Um, today, we have free trade agreements with 20 countries. Um, but the, the the Bush administration was pursuing these these bilaterals as Doha was struggling to move forward. When the Democrats took control of Congress in uh, January of 2007, they put an end to the trade uh, agenda. Said, let's not focus on liberalization anymore. Let's focus on enforcement. Uh, And so that's basically where we've been uh, since then. Um, There were three agreements that had been stranded by that change of tack. Uh, The agreement with Colombia, South Korea, and Panama. Uh, and when President Obama was running for uh, office, he said he was going to reopen NAFTA. He took office and said, "Just kidding uh, let's let 's move beyond this but he didn 't focus on trade. He basically ignored it, and these bilaterals uh, sort of uh, languished here for a while. After the midterm election in two thousand and ten, President Obama decided that he would help uh, get these agreements passed. And ultimately, they did pass. And about that time, the president reiterated U.S. interest in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, this big agreement, which now has 12 negotiating countries. Um, it was originally a, an initiative of, of four smaller countries. The US, when the U.S. expressed interest at the end of the Bush administration to join, it started to percolate a little bit. Um, and the TPP has been negotiated for uh, several years. It's hard to tell exactly where we are, uh, the trade uh, representative told us last year that it would be done by October of 2013. Then during 2013, they moved it to, back to the end of 2013. Um, it's, it's unsure how far along they are. I think that they have a lot further to go than, than, than has been let on. One thing I, I, I'm pretty convinced of is that without trade promotion authority, without Congress specifying the objectives it wants met in these agreements. Uh, in order to give fast track uh, consideration to this legislation, unless the president has that, our trade partners are not going to put their final offers on the table. Uh, so, to, to hear that maybe we should get TPP done before getting TPA makes makes no sense. I don't think it's possible. It's like a dog chasing its tail. Uh, so the question is, is the administration going to put forward uh, the the energy and expend the political capital to get there? Um, and my colleagues were going to talk a little bit about that. Let me let me, let me wrap up saying a couple things about the, the, T, the T-TIP. It was launched uh, early last year. In my opinion, it was launched, You know, the, the, the Obama administration looked to Europe and said, don't worry, our pivot to Asia doesn't mean that we're not thinking about you. You guys can come along for, with some other, uh, we'll engage you in these negotiations. The Europeans who were having problems growing were at the end of the line with fiscal policy and with monetary policy. Uh, were interested in looking like they had a, a, some sort of solution to pursue. I think there is more interest in it now. I think, there, I think um, businesses on both sides of the Atlantic are committed to it, but we also got this rosy projection that it was going to be done in 2014, which is, I, I, I just don't understand why credibility is spent so unwisely. Uh, this isn't going to be done for many years, in my opinion. Uh, I wrote a paper uh, four or five months ago suggesting, given the broad number of issues, some of which are gonna be very difficult to resolve, uh, that they break this up into three tranches. Instead of having a single undertaking where you're gonna agree in two or three or 10 years to all of these uh, issues, break it up into and, and, and smaller parts so we can have success, which will create its own momentum and affirmation Uh, Rather than rather than wait, we're going to negotiate all these things and then get hung up on GMOs at the end or some differences that we have with respect to regulatory, uh, you know, creating regulations and and promulgating and implementing them. Uh, Let's do a little bit at a time. Um, So, let me um, get ready to turn the podium over to my my colleagues to talk a little bit about some of these issues. Um, Bill Watson is uh, is going to talk a little bit about TPA. And its impact on TPP, sort of the interplay between those two. Um, he's going to suggest that the wrong TPA debate involves fake arguments that are sort of cooked up by protectionists. Things like secrecy, you know, alluding to things like secrecy, uh, and not wanting to give uh, uh, the president, uh, this this president, authority uh, to pursue agreements. Um, Uh, Bill has been with Cato for uh, going on a couple of years. He focuses on trade remedies, which are the anti-dumping law, the countervailing duty law, uh, disguised protectionism, uh, the institutional aspects of of global trade liberalization. He manages uh, free trade, free markets, which is uh, a database we have that that rates uh, congressional votes on trade matters and subsidy matters. Uh, You ought to check it out, uh, particularly if you're a staffer or, or you're interested in tracking your member or to see the proclivities of certain members of Congress, come, come, come use that uh, database. Uh, a lot of media have found it very useful. Um, after Simon, um, I mean, sorry, after Bill, Simon is going to speak. Simon Lester, he's going to talk about the, uh, the TIP. Why are we doing it now? What are the substantive issues? Uh, what are the prospects for completion? We'll see if he has a rosier projection than I. Um, Simon's been with us for going on two years as well. Uh, He is a trade policy analyst at Cato, focuses on WTO issues, regional trade agreements, disguised protectionism, the history of uh, international trade law. Uh, Before joining Cato, uh, Simon was uh, a trade lawyer in Washington, before before that, or after that, he was a legal affairs officer at the appellate body, secretariat of the WTO, Uh, and in 2001, he founded what is now a very popular uh, trade law website called worldtradelaw.net. Uh, He and his wife run that. Uh, He's taught international trade law courses at AU, at the University of Michigan Law School. He has a JD himself from from Harvard Law. And then uh, wrapping up, batting cleanup, will be uh, the newest member of Cato. Uh, Dan Pearson's been with us for about four months. Uh, Dan is going to talk a little bit about the... He's going to give a comparison between the Obama administration's trade policy tack and the Clinton administration's tack. Uh, He's going to... uh, suggests some key questions that the, the administration should contemplate as it tries to move the agenda forward. Um, and he's going to provide some thoughts on how supporters of trade liberalization uh, might raise the quality of the public policy debate in the absence of, uh, of, uh, in the absence of administrative support. Uh, and then we'll turn to Q&A. But let me just say a couple words about Dan. Dan, as I said, recently joined us. He's fresh off a 10-year stint at the uh, uh, U.S. International Trade Commission, where he was a chairman, uh, he was a commissioner, uh, he was the chairman, he was vice chairman, he was a con- commissioner for all 10 of those years. Um, the, I, the USITC oversees, it's a quasi judicial agency which oversees the trade remedy laws among a lot of other uh, functions. Before serving at the ITC, Dan uh, worked uh, as a vice president of public affairs uh, and policy analyst at Cargill. And before that, Uh, Back in the day, uh, Dan was up here on the hill working for uh, Senator uh, Rudy Boschwitz of Minnesota from 1981 to 87. So after these three guys talk, we will hopefully we'll have some time for questions, and we will we will do that. But uh, please help me welcome to the podium, uh, Bill Watson.
1: Uh, Thanks, Dan. I uh, I would like to talk about uh, Fast Track TPA. Uh, which is um, really the the main domestic component uh, of the trade agenda. Uh, There's a lot of negotiations going on abroad, uh, and what it is that that Congress can do and how Congress can interact with the trade agenda and with the negotiations is through Trade Promotion Authority. Uh, A bill was introduced uh, a few months ago. Uh, It's been... Uh, it's been long in the in the, the writing um, and uh, almost as soon as it came out, uh, it, it, it was immediately canned. Uh, it's <laughs> it's been a very controversial process. Uh, and even though it it can be described as bipartisan, uh, it has uh, n- not gotten uh, a, y- any real support from Democrats. Uh, and, and it will be interesting to see how it how it develops. I, I'd like to at first explain what Trade Promotion Authority is. Uh, Just give a very clear, simple explanation of how it works. And then talk about the debates that surround Trade Promotion Authority. There are good debates and there are bad debates. Uh, So we'll kind of debunk some of the myths that you might hear about Trade Promotion Authority. And then talk about where there are real issues in the Trade Promotion Authority bill, what kind of debates we'll be having over the next year or two, depending on how long it takes uh, to get this passed. and, and how uh, how Congress can use trade promotion authority to improve the trade agenda. Um, trade promotion authority, which has historically been known as fast track, uh, is essentially an agreement between the president and Congress. Um, the president the president agrees to take on a series of negotiating objectives and consultations in drafting in negotiating a free trade agreement with other countries, and In exchange, Congress agrees to give that agreement an up-or-down vote uh, within a a specific time limit. Um, So assuming that the agreement comes down, uh, it's it's finished and negotiated, and it meets the requirements uh, under the TPA bill, uh, then uh, Congress can't then later amend it uh, or let it sit for a long time and refuse to give it a vote. Uh, One of the reasons why this is particularly effective is that... uh, Free trade agreements are are generally popular in Congress. Uh, They get get the votes. The votes are there usually to pass the agreement. But there are a lot of real small parochial interests uh, that if a particular member of Congress is powerful enough, they can demand that this issue be taken care of. Uh, before moving it through the legislative process. So the the purpose is to kind of smooth the legislative process to ensure that the actual package, the negotiated deal, at least gets an up or down vote. Um, It's very interesting for us to be talking about this now as the the negotiations for the TPP have been going on for three years. Uh, The Obama administration has been very active uh, in the international sphere. Uh, negotiating large agreements, taking on a U.S.-EU agreement. Uh, The the TPP now has 12 members negotiating. Um, And only after years of negotiations did the administration then request trade promotion authority from Congress. Now, the the more ideal way to do this uh, looks a little bit like the way that the Bush administration approached the issue um, in 2002. Right. During the first half of the president's first term, he asked Congress for trade promotion authority. There was a big debate. Um, the, the parameters were set. Congress weighed in. The result was a trade promotion authority bill that not everybody liked, but that had uh, that had guidelines set in it. And then the president went and negotiated a whole bunch of free trade agreements using TPA as a as a as a blueprint to help get them. To get agreements that Congress would like, and Congress had agreed to give them an up or down vote. So we're seeing things happen a little backwards, uh, and and Dan mentioned the uh, that people are now starting to argue that maybe we should have TPP first, and that will help us get a TPA bill. Uh, it's it's really a little curious that we're even at this stage, uh, and uh, and it, and everything is a little bit up in the air, and it's unclear exactly how it's all going to work out. Um, the the debate around fast track around the TPA bill, however, is, is really, um, really very much the same this time as it has been in the past. Uh, you will see, um, let me first talk about what I think is the, the bad debate. Um, there are people claiming that fast track is a way to, uh, to bypass Congress, that it gives the president authority to, um, to negotiate these deals in secret and then and prohibits Congress from getting involved in the negotiations. Um, this is completely backwards, uh, that the, the president can negotiate a treaty and he doesn't have to tell Congress about it until it's done and he shows Congress the treaty and they can ratify it. Uh, TPA switches that around a little bit and allows Congress to have some say in the process uh, in a legally binding way, to have some say in the process at an earlier stage. Um, so you'll see people arguing about uh, secrecy, about constitutionality, uh, and about particularly this time, very interesting, um, about giving President Obama too much executive power. Uh, so there's a there's a campaign going on right now um, to try to convince Republicans uh, that this is some kind of power grab uh, by the, by President Obama which is just really backwards because Republicans have been trying to get President Obama to ask for this authority for years. Um, And it's really, it, it really, while it gives him some, it gives him the ability to propose an agreement that goes down the fast track and has a timeline and gets an up or down vote, it also gives Congress some say in the negotiations. And that is where we should be having the real debate. What does Congress want to say in the negotiations? Uh, what is Congress's position on on various issues uh, that that are coming up in the trade agenda? And uh, we will be having that debate, right? So there are, uh, right now, uh, factions in Congress who are very concerned about currency manipulation, Chinese currency manipulation. Now, China isn't involved in the TPP negotiations, but this is very much an issue that has to do with the TPP and with China. Um, Now, the current TPA bill does a very good job of mentioning currency manipulation, saying that currency manipulation is a problem and the president should do something about it without tying the president's hands on how he should negotiate that issue. Uh, This is very important because if if the president is bound to include some kind of enforceable currency rules in the TPP, that may very well kill the TPP. Uh, and, And there is... Strong. I think there's good reason to believe that that's one of the justifications for people insisting that it be included in TPA, is to have it prevent the agreement from being completed at all. Um, The other countries involved, uh, unanimously, do not want to deal with um, monetary policy in a trade agreement. And they're, they're just not concerned about currency manipulation the same way that the United States uh, the same way that certain uh, industry uh, interests are in the United States, and so uh, they're going to be very opposed to it, um, particularly at this late stage in the negotiations, where uh, the United States has already, um, you know, put out all of its all of its, you know, st- uh, toughest offers, and and is trying to negotiate some kind of compromise on those. To add in a new issue, uh, and one that that is not very favorable. Uh, in, in, in view of our, our other partners, uh, could really, I mean, even if it doesn't kill the negotiations, it's going to stall them for, for a long time. It, it's, it's just not the right way for this uh, dynamic to work out. Um, and to be honest, the U.S. already has a particularly ambitious negotiating agenda. Uh, and it's actually one of the ways that TPA could be used uh, to, to help the U.S. agenda. Uh, there are a number of ways in which the U.S. is taking very firm positions uh, that are, in my view, uh, politically uh, detrimental uh, to the domestic uh, uh, political situation for support for the TPP uh, and that are harming the negotiations. So I'll give you a few examples. Um, right now, uh, the president is, uh, is very adamant about including strong environmental protections in the TPP. Uh, enforceable labor and environment provisions are, are a, a key part of the agenda. And they're also facing significant opposition uh, from our trading partners. Uh, we, we know this especially because of, of uh, leaks from WikiLeaks, of actual uh, uh, draft versions of the agreement. And you can see the US position and everybody else's position. The US is pushing a position that's, that's not very popular. But it's also not getting any support from environmentalists. Who are opposed to the TPP, no matter what's in it? So it, it, it's hard to understand, for me to understand what what the what the political calculation is here and why this is helpful, uh, and that perhaps there's room in a TPA bill to, at the very least, make sure that it's not any stricter than it already is. Right, the TPA bill will include requirements that any U.S. agreement uh, contain, um, you know, particular or a particular level of environmental. Uh, protection and uh, and y- making sure that that doesn't get any stronger. You will see people, members of Congress, will argue. They will send letters. They will propose amendments that it should be even stronger than it is. Um, th- this will only burden the negotiations in a way that doesn't really help. When, it doesn't help passage of the TPP. It doesn't help uh, the free trade agenda I- in any way. So it, these are these are uh, sort of dangerous areas. Uh, I would also caution. On the issue of intellectual property, Um, there is a kind of a general sense that if you think intellectual property is good, then free trade agreements should push for more intellectual property, that uh, foreign countries should have at least as much intellectual property protection as the United States and that this would be fair. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of what's going on in the negotiations is... um, more could be better described as an attempt by particular U.S. industry groups to change the balance of intellectual property law towards particular interests. Um, So like we saw um, uh, a little while back with uh, the the SOPA-PIPA ordeal, right? there uh, is maybe a little bit of ignorance uh, on, on some people's part about the political dynamic. That's going on on intellectual property law. Uh, so, um, any kind of change t- to U.S. copyright law could, or even a perceived change to U.S. copyright law, could bring in a lot of a lot of, uh, a, a lot of uh, popular um, opposition to the TPP as an entire package. That people will think that it is a secret IP treaty, um, and and if the goal is to get z- to, you know, find this way to liberalize trade, to lower U.S. trade barriers, to lower foreign trade barriers, uh, we we start getting off mission uh, when we do intellectual property in a way that maybe doesn't, uh, that doesn't add domestic support and is also an issue where the U.S. is, is uh, you know, very, very isolated from other countries. Uh, so as the TPA bill progresses through Congress, uh, you know, maybe sometime after the election, um, maybe next year. Um, but, e- but even in the interim, we'll see people talking about what, what should be in the TPA bill. What should it be tied to? Uh, what is the, the U.S. trade agenda and what should it be? Uh, and those are really good opportunities to uh, take a stance. Uh, to Instead of just saying, well, I like trade or I don't like trade. Um, and, and so that determines whether I support TPA or not. Um, you can you can have a constructive. It would be nice to see a constructive debate uh, on particular issues. Uh, so it, it'll be good to see if we can if we can have that debate. Um, uh, but like I said, uh, you know, it may not be any time in the next coming months uh, because it's an election year. Thank you.
2: come up? Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'm going to be talking about the, the TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. The TTIP is the, the youngest of the trade acronyms. Uh, President Obama uh, announced um, that the U.S. would participate in this uh, trade negotiation in January of 2013. The negotiations didn't really start until July of that year, so it's less than a year old. Um, it's, a, it's a baby. Uh, the TPP has been around for a few years. Well, the U.S. has been involved for a few years, but it was you know, around a couple of years before that, um, just for comparison. Um, the, the Uruguay round of the, the GATT negotiations lasted eight years. So, so the TTIP is still very new on the scene. Um, but when you when you have a, a free trade negotiation between the two largest economies in the world, the U.S. and the EU, uh, people instantly take notice. It becomes a big deal. Uh, so I'm going to talk about three things related to the TTIP. First, why why have a TTIP and why have it now? Uh, second, what's going to be in it? And then third, prospects for completion. So one question people might ask is, why don't we already have a U.S.-EU uh, trade agreement? You know, nobody thought of this before. That seems a little crazy. Uh, we've got FTAs with Jordan, with Morocco, uh, with Peru, lots of other countries. Why not the EU? One of the big concerns people raise about trade agreements uh, in the U.S. is, well, if we trade with developing countries, we have all this cheap labor we're competing with. Those of you who are old enough to remember, you know, Ross Pro talking about the giant sucking sound of, of jobs going down to Mexico. But we don't really have that with the EU. I mean, you know, I think, Probably most people here, uh, I don't know if we have any Europeans here, but most people are are familiar with the the stereotypes about the EU, and sort of cheap labor isn't really one of those. The stereotype is, well, they're not working all that hard. They're taking six weeks off in the summer, 35-hour work weeks. Surely we can compete with that, right? Um, That shouldn't be a big concern. I'll point out there that I'm also I'm a dual U.S.-U.K. citizen, so I'm allowed to insult the Europeans (laughs) or joke about them. Um, So so why not have free trade with the six hundred and thirty six billion dollars of annual trade between the U.S. and EU every year? If you support free trade and it's you know, it's fine if you don't. There are some people don't. But if you support free trade with these smaller countries, why not with the EU? Um, That's where the big gains would be. Well, one of the problems is you know, we have lots of trade disputes with the EU that have lingered on for, for decades uh, sometimes with political and legal disputes. Um, just some examples. The U.S. and EU both subsidize their aircraft manufacturers, Boeing and Airbus, considerably, um, and we've been battling over this for, for decades. And there's been litigation going on at the WTO for, I think, almost 10 years now. Um, there are other disputes, uh, Europeans are very sensitive about their food, so, you know, reluctant to approve genetically modified foods or hormone-traded beef. So you've got these long-running trade disputes uh, that make it difficult to sit down and talk about liberalizing trade because, you know, we're spending so much time battling about trade barriers. So that's maybe one reason it, it hasn't happened um, before that. So why is it suddenly happening now? Well, as I think, you know, Dan mentioned uh, briefly, you know, the U.S. and the Europe and the world have been through these financial crises recently and, internally, the Europeans got together and said, what are we supposed to do about this? You know, we need some way to promote growth. Hey, how about a free trade agreement with the U.S.? That would be a good idea. So they all got together and agreed they wanted to do it and then, you know, came to the U.S. I mean, it's a little more complicated than that, but oversimplifying a bit. Came to the U.S., said, we'd really like this. Can you get on board? And the U.S. said, OK, sure, we, we can do it. A little bit reluctantly, but um, so that's why it's that's why it it's happening now after all these years. So, OK, so. What's going to be in this thing? Uh, you know, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. That's kind of vague. What is this partnership about? Um, you know, what are we going to do in this trade agreement? Well, if you if you read just if you read some news articles about this, one thing you'll you'll you will probably come across is a statement that uh, tariffs are already low, and this agreement's going to be all about regulation. I'm going to talk about regulation in a second, but I want to push back a little bit on the on the tariff point. Um, Tariffs are relatively low between the U.S. and the EU, but they do exist, and they're still bad from our perspective. And I, I'd still like to get rid of them. Um, and if we can do that in this trade agreement, I think that would be great. In 2012, the U.S. collected 4.5 billion dollars in tariffs on, on imported European goods. Now, I know a billion dollars doesn't go as far as it used to. You know, these days you can create an app and sell it for 19 billion dollars, but 4.5 billion dollars is still a lot of money. Um, and I think there would be great benefits from sitting down and getting rid of you know. Uh, U.S. tariffs on European goods and European tariffs on imported goods. The average tariff uh, on U.S.-EU trades is, uh, I think the U.S. average tariff is about 3.5 percent. The European might be a little smaller. Uh, but that adds up uh, when you're talking about uh, you know, that amount of trade, $636 billion. And some tariffs are still, are still fairly high. Just some examples, the U.S. tariff on uh, sport utility vehicles, uh, light trucks is 25 percent. That's that's fairly large. Uh, tuna is 35 uh, percent. European tariffs of honey, of, uh, honey of 17 percent. Strawberries are 20 percent. I don't know why I picked out all those food items, but there are still some significant tariffs out there. And it would be great if we could sit down and, and get rid of them. Um, and if that's all we did in this agreement, I'd still be pretty happy with it. But but what everybody's saying is the big thing we're going to do here is talk about regulation, regulatory trade barriers, non-tariff barriers. Um, what is that? Now, if you read the economic studies of these issues, and I don't recommend it, um, but if you do, uh, you know they go through these long lists of things that they consider to be non-tariff barriers that include, for example, post office monopolies. Now, I'm not saying I support post office monopolies, but I just I find it hard to believe that the U.S. and the EU are going to sit down in this trade agreement and somehow get rid of post office monopolies. So I think we need to think carefully about what it is you know, could actually be achieved uh, in the area of dealing with regulatory trade barriers as part of uh, these talks. So I'm going to mention two categories of of issues. One is regulatory outcomes, and the other is regulatory process. So with the outcomes, there are two points here. One is divergent regulations between countries, and the other is uh, duplicative um, approval processes. So think of, uh, Dan talked about cars. Cars are always a good example. Um, Car safety tests. The U.S. and European regulatory agencies both – uh, want cars to be safe before we put them on the roads. So we have this whole testing process to make sure the cars are safe. Can't we all agree that, you know, their process is just as good as ours? And if something, if, if a car meets their standard, shouldn't we, be, shouldn't, we be, um, shouldn't we agree to sell it here? And if a car meets our standard, shouldn't they agree to sell it there? Instead of, for each car, you know, you've got to test it in one market to sell there and test it in another pro- market to sell there. It would be much more efficient if we could agree to recognize each other's testing processes. There's also the issue of regulatory divergence. You might you know, different different countries have uh, you know are pursuing the same policy goals, but they're kind of doing it on their own, and as a result, they're going to kind of do things differently and come to different outcomes. Sometimes just arbitrarily. I'm just going to give you an anecdote here. When I worked at the at the WTO in, in Switzerland, um, 1999 through 2001, we brought our Toyota Corolla over to Switzerland. And the Corolla has these daytime running lights. The lights just come on when you turn on. And we were driving around Switzerland, and everyone would say to us, everybody on the street, like, your lights are on, your lights are on. We know the lights are on. We can't turn them off. This is how it works. So apparently at that time there, you couldn't have lights that turn on. So we had to go to a mechanic who had to switch this off so that we wouldn't have our lights on. And when we brought it back to the U.S., we had to turn them on again. These things – I mean, that's one small example, but there's just – there are many things across many different product areas, and it just seems inefficient to have these divergent regulations. Now, sometimes there are important policy concerns here. And maybe there's some, you know, maybe the Swiss did a study and they thought, you know, that having the lights on was getting glaring in people's eyes and causing accidents. I don't know. But it, there, there are lots of these regulatory divergences that I think we could get rid of if we could get the relevant agencies to sit down and say, oh, you do it that way. We do it this way. Well, you know, we, we can split the difference. We can recognize yours is just as good as ours and, um, and, yeah, and we just a much more efficient outcome, much, much easier on business. So, so that's regulatory outcomes. Another big issue has been the regulatory process, how we regulate. And on this issue, uh, the U.S. has has pushed um, two items in particular, tried to convince the Europeans to, to change their process to look more like ours. So one of them is this idea that the U.S. relies more on cost-benefit analysis, and the Europeans rely a lot on the precautionary principle and are reluctant to approve uh, new products for use. Now, I tend to think that that's a bit exaggerated. I don't know if that really applies across all product areas. I mean, I think people look at examples like the Europeans reluctant to approve genetically modified foods and say, well, the Europeans are much you know, much regulated, much, uh, much more strictly than we do. I, I think it actually varies more than that. Um, but that's one, thing, that's one area where the U.S. is kind of pushing Europe to, to be more like us. Another is here in the U.S., as I'm sure you all know probably better than I do, When an agency puts out a regulation, it first has to uh, put a draft out there for comments and and get input from various interest groups and then respond to them and maybe modify the regulation uh, in response to that. In Europe, they do get input on regulations beforehand, but they don't actually put out a draft text for people to comment on. And the U.S. negotiators are pushing the Europeans to to adopt something uh, more like what we do. The problem with the regulatory trade issues is it's not clear the U.S. and the EU are on the same page. The Europeans, my sense is, are thinking more of a, a regulatory cooperation idea to sort of to get rid of these divergences where the U.S. is pushing more of you know, uh, change your regulatory process to be more like ours. So something I believe that something good can come out of this process, but it's it's still not clear to me you know what how far it will go and whether the two sides are on the same page. Um let me mention one thing that I would like to see in these trade negotiations, but is not in there, uh, agriculture subsidies. I think everybody knows we have a lot of agriculture subsidies. Europeans, Europeans certainly have a lot of agriculture subsidies. Uh, that seems to be off the table, um, and that, that's kind of disappointing. I, I'd really love to, to see everyone uh, sit down and, and talk about, it. isn't there something more we can do? We've done it before as part of the WTO negotiations to at least commit to to subsidize you know, in a certain way or, or not above a certain amount. Um, that doesn't seem to be on the table here, which is disappointing. Other things that I'd also like to see on the on the table are trade remedies. That's anti dumping and countervailing duties. Um, one that is on the table that I, that I like is uh, government procurement and opening up uh, government procurement to, to foreign competition. And the Europeans are are, try, are pushing hard to get more access to uh, U.S. state and federal uh, procurement activity. And, you know, I think from all of our perspective, that that's also great. And it's kind of a core part of uh, – Free trade and trade liberalization. Finally, let me just uh, wrap up with some uh, a few words about prospects for completion. Uh, Dan's very skeptical of a, a, a completion of completion happening anytime soon. I am too. Um, I don't know exactly how our skepticism compares. Um, I, you know, in terms of the dates. Uh, Early on, the, the, the proclamations from you know, people in the U.S. and European governments is we're going to finish this quickly on one tank of gas. We don't want this to drag on like some trade negotiations sometimes do. So let's just sit down and get this done and not get distracted by anything else. And uh, they were saying we're going to do it by the end of 2014. But, I mean, it's already March. Um, you know, there's still a, a, clearly a long way to go. a lot of issues to resolve. It's hard to believe the end of 2014 is realistic Maybe the end of 2015, um, maybe, but, you know, we still have this whole TPA process in the U S to deal with, um, that sort of, I mean, in a sense that kind of slows down the, the, the international negotiations because maybe our trading partners aren't sure if we can actually get this done. So, uh, end of 2015, I think looks optimistic, possibly doable, maybe depending on, as Dan was saying, you know, maybe some of these issues get put off to later. Maybe let's just do the easy ones now, um, and then get out of here, um, one other point to mention: that Canadians have been uh, negotiating their own trade agreement with the EU, and they're further along than we are. They they are pretty close to completion. They're still kind of looking over the the legal texts and you know maybe arguing about some wording. And they still need approval from uh, the Canadian Parliament and the, the European uh, governmental bodies. Um, but it, w- it would be odd, I think, if Ford's made in Canada could be exported to the EU duty free, but Ford's made in the U.S. couldn't. So. It would really be nice if we could push this along. Um, this also raises the issue, though, and I'll just make this my last point, of the proliferation of trade agreements. I mean, we've got the NAFTA. Uh, already in effect. We're negotiating the TPP. We've got the TTIP out there. The Canadian EU one is called the CETA. All these countries are negotiating with each other, and it just leads to this big mess of overlapping trade agreements. And, uh, you know, I really, I think all of us here uh, at the Cato Trade Policy Department would agree that ideally we could do this multilaterally at the WTO, and it's sort of frustrating to see it uh, see it not happen, and maybe someday we could get back to that. But for now, we're stuck with, you know, this is the best we can do, and we're sort of trying to make the best of it. Uh, hopefully it goes somewhat well um, and we'll just keep offering our thoughts as to how to make it a little bit better. Thanks.
3: Good afternoon. The, the question for today is, when will we enjoy the fruits of the US trade agenda? Unfortunately, my conclusion is very likely not until at least 2017 or further out in the future. I really hope I'm wrong because I'm very much a free trader. But I just don't think this administration can get there from here. Uh, I want to discuss uh, three topics, go through things fairly quickly. But one of the reasons that I've reached this conclusion is uh, the experience I had. When the Clinton administration was dealing with trade policy issues, so let me offer some comparisons between the Clinton efforts and the Obama efforts. So, Clinton ran as a protectionist in 1992. Uh, He wanted to reopen the NAFTA and fix it. 16 years later, Obama ran as a protectionist, wanting to reopen the NAFTA and fix it. Now, um, they're the. After that, things kind of uh, break apart. But but uh, the reality is that Clinton was genuinely committed to getting NAFTA done. So he took office, and he assembled around him some some people who uh, shared his vision. They had adults in the room. Some of you will remember Lloyd Benson as Treasury Secretary. He spent most of his career up here in the Senate representing Texas. He understood intuitively, the importance of the bilateral economic relationship between Mexico and the United States, he was going to get this done. For a trade representative, Clinton chose someone who just mystified me initially, Mickey Cantor, a labor lawyer. What's going on here? This guy doesn't know anything about trade, and in reality, he did not, at least not very much. And yet the biggest obstacle that the Clinton administration had to moving forward on trade was organized labor. And so there was Mickey Cantor, the guy who knew those issues and could find a way forward. And to his credit, he did make some modest uh, modifications in the NAFTA and fulfill Clinton's commitment to to make changes. Uh, the third one I would mention is Al Gore, who was, men- who was referenced earlier. Uh, how... How many of you remember the Ross Perot Al Gore debate on the NAFTA? You see a number of people. So I see in a trade policy room, people yeah, I I would find some of you. My view, that was Al Gore's finest hour, very likely deserving of a Nobel Peace Prize, frankly. <laughs> but I don't think I don't think he got one for that. Um. Okay, so a little, a little more background than we perhaps need, but what I'm trying to say is that the Clinton administration at senior levels really had people who cared about this and wanted to get it done and were capable of going out in public and making a pro-trade argument and making it stick. By contrast, I'm not sure that anyone currently at cabinet level or above could do that and we can discuss that in question and answer. If you can identify such a person, let me know. But I just think they're weak at the top on trade issues. I I think it's very difficult for them to engage on these effectively. Now, in addition to that, uh, the Obama administration has been very much out-organized by some of its traditional supporters, uh, labor and environment and various non-governmental organizations. Um, Ambassador Froman recently has been trying to Engage with those groups and and turn the tide. And by all accounts, he has been spectacularly unsuccessful. Um, some of you may have more direct input from those groups than I do, but you know it's, it is what it is. It's right now. There's a whole lot of administration, traditional administration supporters that do not want the administration to move ahead with the trade agenda. The Stop Fast Track Coalition uh, it claims to have more than six hundred thousand. Petition signatures against fast track. And then we have in Congress very active opposition from uh, many Democrats, some Republicans, and both the Senate Majority Leader and the House Minority Leader. Okay? This is substantial opposition, guys. I mean, yeah. Okay, so wh- to wrap up this section, although I think it's still theoretically possible for the administration to get fast track... It's going to be such a heavy lift. I just don't see that the odds favor them being able to do it. Okay. So now my second topic. Some key questions that I think the Obama administration should ask itself as it tries to sort out how or whether to move forward. First, is the Baucus Hatch Camp uh, trade promotion bill one that is supportable or not? I mean, if the administration likes it, they should say so. If they do not like it, they better put something out there pretty quickly, pretty clearly, that's, that they will support. Because just supporting it in concept and letting everything float is not going to get us wh- where we need to go. If the administration really is serious about moving forward, who do they have who's going to uh, make effective arguments to the liberal base? Who's, who's going to be out there engaging? And, and what would the arguments be that would win? somewhat related to that, who would the administration designate to go out in public and shoot down the anti-trade blather that that emanates so frequently from people who love to talk about trade and either have just an agenda against it or they haven't studied economics? I don't know. Um, But then the, the broad, the raw political question, is gaining fast track more important than maintaining the president's approval rating. I think there's a trade-off there, and I I just don't know what choice they would make. Is the administration willing to take the risk that if they do try really hard to get fast-track and then fail, that, um, that they would look even more and impotent in the eyes of the world. I mean, this is, this is an important issue because we're talking about U.S. foreign relations here. We, we're, we're, we are leading negotiating partners along the primrose path, and if, if we can't deliver fast track at home, I don't Oh, well. How important is the president's desire to be seen as a global leader who leaves a legacy of progress on international economic issues? Don't know. What, if anything, should be done in the TTP and TTIP negotiations between now and uh, the granting of fast track? Should those negotiations just be suspended? I think there's a reasonable argument that that would be okay. Uh, should the administration be candid with our negotiating partners regarding the prospects for concluding agreements without fast track? Hey, guys, let's keep talking, but we don't think we're ever going to get fast track. Uh, or should the United States try to maintain the facade that, oh, don't worry, Fast Track is going to be there in just a few months? My third topic, just on time, too. Uh, how might supporters of trade liberalization raise the quality of the public debate? In other words, look, those of us who support free trade are not in the best possible situation. We've got an administration here that may not be able to move anything forward and during the rest of its tenure, how do we try to move something forward? And the only thing that we can really do is move forward public opinion, which is mostly anti-trade at the moment, it seems to me. Okay. Um, so my encouragement to you is not to be too bummed out. Okay, I'm giving you what I what is my realistic view, but. I'm not going to go home and and, and and hide because of this. I think that there are certain basic arguments that have been well-known since Adam Smith and David Ricardo and others worked on them uh, that, uh, that we, we should feel comfortable discussing. One of them, all resources are scarce. Thus, all resources have value. Open and competitive markets do a wonderful job of allocating scarce resources, getting things where they're most needed so that they can be put to their best and highest uses. Border restrictions complicate the operation of markets and make the global economy less efficient, make the United States less efficient. Two, comparative advantage still works, even in the 21st century. Some countries and some people are better at doing some things than others. People should be encouraged to focus on doing those things they do well and then be willing to trade. Three, people need to be free to to buy from and sell to whomever they choose. I, I think that freedom of commerce really is a fundamental human right. Any government restriction that's placed on a person's ability to do business uh, should be done, I think, only for a very good societal reason. We have the Export Administration Act that restricts exports of products that other countries could u- use against us. Okay, that's we could mention perhaps some other things. but, but we, we need to be really careful there about letting the government decide who we should do business with for imports are good. Uh, they help to ensure that consumers have a lot of choice, uh, competitively priced products. And they also provide provide world class competition to U.S. firms, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, the U.S. auto industry, I think, is is producing far far better products now because of the competition than well than certainly than the the vehicles I was driving in the '70s. So on yeah. five. Exports also are good. We need them in order to pay for some imports, okay? I mean, you know, plus plus we, if we believe in comparative advantage, then we should be doing more of some things than others, and so we got a surplus of the things that we do well. We better be willing to sell them, otherwise other countries couldn't rely on their comparative advantage. Six, both imports and exports create jobs. Economic activity that doesn't spread across borders also creates jobs. All productive economic activity is good. More of it is better. So let me just conclude by saying I think the administration faces really difficult choices. I would not want to be in the White House tr- trying to help them sort this out. And I, yeah, I'm mostly Republican, but mostly libertarian. But uh, but you know they they've gotten themselves into a tough situation. I don't know how they're going to get out of it. Uh, if, if they do decide they want to pre- press forward, they need to put together a credible plan for getting from point A to point B very quickly. If they're not going to try to go forward, I think they should advise their partners in T- 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 TPP and TTIP uh, that concluding those negotiations are going to take a long time, eh, maybe not till the next administration. So, in short, it is theoretically possible for this administration to move forward with its trade agenda. Uh, As a practical matter, I just think the political price for doing so is, is going to be way too high. Thank you.